make sure that uh, that program doesn't contain controversial subjects and uh, you're not impolite to people. Oh, definitely not, Dad. You know me. I'm never, <laughs> ever controversial or yeah, impolite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Welcome to Conversations with your lovable, never pisses anyone off, never been banned from Facebook or YouTube, never been sabotaged or censored for politely expressing a difference of opinion, ex-Muslim host Ina, keeping it non-controversial. This is episode 14, and today I have a pretty unique guest, Zubin Madan, former Zoroastrian priest. You can follow him on Twitter at Z Madan, M-A-D-O-N. He's an excellent blogger as well over at Huffington Post. Okay, so how's it going, Zubin? Fine, fine. Good morning to you. Yeah, thank you so much. It's nighttime where you are. Thanks for taking the time out, and... It's no problem. Nice to speak to someone all the way from India. It's it's kind of cool how internet connects us all, eh? That's right. Yeah, you know, I've known you on Twitter for a while and I never knew you're like an ex Zoroastrian priest. Can't believe you never yeah, told me that before. Well, there's not much to talk about. Nobody even knows uh, who Zoroastrians are, really. So, uh, I mean, if I were to blog about it, I, I would, I'd probably take 3,000 words to explain who, exactly what, who, what it is. It is. Yeah. yeah, not yeah, even start to begin to explain what it is. So, yeah, I mean, it's a religion that not many people uh, in the West hear about, but in South Asia, we're pretty familiar with. Uh, you know, the Parsi community. Of course, India and Pakistan. Yeah, but but even though we're familiar with the community's existence, it's still a pretty mysterious, you know, religion. Yes, yes. And there are a whole bunch of urban legends that we all marry our sisters and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and a whole bunch of them. I think because we are so small, we are only a community of 69,000 people. And uh, in India, even though we've given the country its highest ranking military officer, its most decorated war heroes and industrialists, the pioneer of uh, nuclear physics in India was a Parsi. Oh, Still, cool. I mean, uh, it's not very widely known. Uh, everybody in Bombay would recognize, immediately recognize us from our long noses and, uh, you know, very peculiar uh, features. <laughs> but your North American uh, listeners might relate to this. Uh, we've given the world its queen. Uh, Freddie Mercury oh, that's was right. Farouk Balsara. Yeah, he was, right. I think, the most uh, famous Parsi in the world. That's right, he was. His parents were ethnic Parsis. I don't know if he was a practicing Zoroastrian or not. Right. But yeah, man, that's quite a contribution for such a tiny community. Okay, so tell us a bit about, about the religion, where it came from, how you guys ended up in India and Pakistan. I think it's one of the oldest organized religions still surviving. A lot of Parsis would tell you that it's the first monotheistic religion, but that's not true. The God in the Zoroastrian context is not omnipotent. What Zoroastrianism says is basically there is a constant struggle between good and evil, and you have to always take the side of the good, etc., etc. And there are a whole bunch of lower divinities that look over water and air and they have their little sidekick divinities and we worship all of them so i wouldn't say it's strictly monotheistic but yeah it's uh, one of the oldest religions still surviving mm -hmm. uh, so it started in iran maybe earlier than 2000 bc so it was the state religion during the archimanid empire and the sassanid empire and then once uh, Islam came in and the Arabs attacked Persia, uh, the Sassanid dynasty fell. So there was a group of uh, elite, you know, from the northern part of Iran known as Khorasan. It's called the province of Pars. So these people, they escaped, they took a boat and came to India as refugees. This was about 1100 years ago. And that's how these refugees came to be known as Parsis, the people of Pars. Mm. So they first landed on the west coast of India 
in Gujarat. We didn't speak the language or anything. So the king summoned us in his court and the legend has it that, I mean, this is just a legend mm-hmm. that he he puts a pot of milk filled to the brim in front of the leader trying to convey that my land is full of people. Uh, there is no place to accommodate you. And, oh, uh, that our anti-refugee le- stuff goes way oh, back. Anti- yeah, I mean, uh, well, it's a legend, but I mean... No, no, what I know, he- I'm just kidding. Yeah, <laughs> what what he was trying to say is that we are full to the brim and we got no place for you. So the leader of the Parsis, he takes some sugar or jaggery, whatever it was, and he slips it into the milk, signifying that just as the sugar dissolves in milk and sweetens the pot, we will assimilate with the indigenous people here and uh, live in harmony. That's kind of a nice sentiment. Yes, uh, and then apparently, again, the same legend. Uh, this is in Kisse Sanjan, which is basically like a long poem about how we got here, uh, okay. passed on from generation to generation. So it says the king put five conditions to us. First, he said, surrender all your weapons. Then explain your religion to me. Then you have to adopt the local language and the local dress. And lastly, he said, you will only have your marriage ceremonies after sunset. Uh, I don't know why he put that fifth (laughs) one in, but uh, that's how it goes. So since then, the Parsis have been in India for 1,100 years. Right, and I guess during the partition, some of them were in in Pakistan and some were in India, and so we have our own community as well. Yeah, there there is a there is a, a community presence in Karachi. That yeah. is correct. Most of them are in Karachi, and uh, from what I hear, they've been migrating to Canada slowly. So even the Karachi population has dwindled to maybe a, maybe three or four thousand at the most. Oh wow! So yeah, I mean, I can't imagine like being such a minority, such a tiny minority everywhere, right? It's, but the thing yes, is, yes, yes, and but uh, it's really surprising that they survived eleven hundred years without getting assimilated. I mean, uh, it is said that a lot of groups, small groups, uh, left Iran, left Persia after the. Uh, you know, after the Persians lost the Battle of Qadisya and Nihavan to the is- Islamic invaders, uh, they I'm so a lot sorry. of groups. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, they, a lot of them left Persia and uh, migrated to Central Asia, went all the way to China, but most of them got assimilated uh, and uh, you know mixed. I think the group that came to India is the only one that survived all this mm-hmm. while, keeping their uh, religion and everything. That's pretty neat, but. It's dwindling, right? As the numbers tell us, it's... Uh, yes, it is. It is dwindling. Uh, we never numbered beyond maybe 120,000. That was in the early 1900s. But I don't think we've ever been higher than that. But it is dwindling. But uh, there are a lot of theories about why that is happening. Mostly it is uh, because of social reasons. Uh, we are one of the most affluent communities in India. We mm-hmm. have the highest per capita income I think in the world, I mean, considering ethnic minorities, we're all highly educated, so nobody really gets married before Till 30, late, 32. Yeah. yeah. And nobody really wants to have more than one kid, you know? So. Right. And then I, I hear that also finding a spouse that's also Parsi is very hard when. The options well, are so course, limited, yeah. right? Uh, that, yeah, that is very interesting. Uh, a lot of Parsis are now getting married to, uh, you know, uh, outside the fold, which was absolutely taboo for the last thousand years. I was reading a, this book called The History of the Parsis by Karaka I, uh, many years ago. And he mentions that uh, when the Brits got here and the some of the British officers in their accounts they mentioned the Parsi community and said it was one of the most ethnocentric tribes they had ever come across. And uh, if somebody were to fall in love with a non-Parsi, he would literally be murdered. Wow. So, yeah, we've come a long way. Yeah, that's from so different those from days. the image of uh, Parsis that I have, a very tolerant and, uh, you know, not religiously violent group from what I know. <laughs> Absolutely. But still, that, there is a, like a, a frowning upon when um, someone marries outside, right? Yes, but uh, I'll 
tell you the stigma is greatly reduced of course, from what from it was. Murder. Yeah. yeah. No, and you know, even from what it was in the 80s and 70s, you know, uh, uh, women especially, they were literally uh, disbarred and uh, the family would disown them and stuff like that. But uh, now my own cousins are... Uh, married to Hindus, I have lots of friends married to Catholics. My cousin's living in Australia, I'm married to Australians. Yeah, things are changing. That's that's great. So there's a um, there's a really interesting uh, tradition, interesting kind of creepy thing that has always fascinated me about Barsis is this Tower of mm-hmm. Silence and vultures. Tell me about the vultures. Yes. Uh, so basically, when a Zoroastrian dies, uh, the body is conf- consigned to the Tower of Silence. It's it's like a huge uh, well, you know, and uh, the body is put there and the vultures come and devour the carcass. Yeah, that's got to be like the creepiest way to, to deal with a dead body. Yeah, well, the Zoroastrians, they don't cremate, um, I mean, the orthodox Zoroastrians at least now, uh, you know, they consider the fire sacred. We are basically fire worshippers in a way. Yeah. So they consider the fire sacred, so they will not uh, burn or char Mm -hmm. the remains. Uh, That's a no-no, you know. Uh, And Parsis in India still practice a, a very orthodox, ritualistic version of Zoroastrianism. So... Yeah, uh, but, uh, you know, the vulture populations all over Asia are declining. Yeah, why is that? Uh, uh, Well, it's mostly because of uh, diclofenac that uh, is being injected to cattle. That's the painkiller. And when the vultures feed on the cattle, these high doses of diclofenac are going in their systems. And that's how they're dying out. About 90% of the vultures in Asia have died out. So now we are faced with that problem. Yeah. Uh, because the bodies are not, uh, you know, uh, I, I believe uh, my dad used to tell me that when he was young, the body used to be devoured in like seven minutes flat. There were so many vultures. Oh my God. And now we have a problem where uh, hundreds of bodies are just lying there, uh, you know, because there are no vultures. Yeah, that's got to so, be really unhygienic and... Yeah, so what they've done is uh, in Bombay, in Mumbai, uh, we've put up solar panels so to kind of dry the body faster, you know. It's, uh, it's working, some say it's not. So basically, uh, we have this 66-acre forest in prime locality in Mumbai where we have this tower of silence and uh, and it's one of the most elite residential areas in india so of course uh, you know during the monsoons when there's no sunlight and there is a bad stink mm-hmm. emanating so there's a lot of controversy going on yes uh, so the reformists have uh, you know uh, started their own crematorium and initially there was a fight the orthodox said if you are going to cremate the body then we will not allow you to c- uh, conduct the last rites at our prayer halls so the reformists went on to make their own prayer halls wow. you know Good for so them. now the yeah well that's what has happened on a lot of issues even on the issue of intermarriage uh, like i said for a thousand years you weren't allowed to marry anybody outside the fold they wouldn't accept your spouse into the fold and the orthodox still don't mm-hmm. then uh, what happened was in 1908 this big shot uh, Parsi, R.D. Tata, he married a French woman and he came back with her and he went to court saying, uh, I want my wife to be allowed in the temples and uh, and when she dies, I want to consign her body to the Tower of Silence. So there was a big case and uh, the court ultimately ruled against him saying that these properties were, they were for ethnic Parsis. But they also said that uh, your children will be allowed into the fold. And uh, that's where the huge controversy started because the court basically said that if a man marries outside the fold, his children will be allowed uh, because uh, apparently we are a patriarchal society, some shit like that. So ever since then, when the man marries outside, his kids are allowed into the fold. Lovely. But if, a woman, but if a woman marries outside, her kids are not allowed. So this became a new issue. 
and of course it was extremely uh, discriminatory against the women so as is every uh, fucking religion what is exactly. wrong <laughs> so but uh, then and i mean the women fought and fought for years together so now as things stand the reformists have said okay screw you we'll make our own temples and uh, own prayer halls and we'll practice our own version of zoroastrianism which is not ritualistic which is uh, you know which accepts everybody mm-hmm. while the orthodox said okay you can do whatever you want as long as you don't enter our temples so do they consider them like not real parsis well see parse the word parsi itself is really an ethnic uh, it's an ethnic thing yeah yeah it's nothing to do with religion uh, there are people like meher master moose who are converting russians to zoroastrianism and uh, i was going to you know, ask can you can you convert into it well not according to the ritualistic the orthodox zoroastrianism practiced by the parsis no they they claim that uh, there is no uh, conversion ritual the navjot ceremony which uh, uh, which is performed on children before puberty to indoctrinate them into the fold is only performed on children of parsi lineage and that's how it's been but uh, like i said the new reformist uh, group that has branched out they have their own priests and they are performing uh, you know navjots indoctrination mm-hmm. ceremonies for kids from mixed marriages stuff like that indoctrination so, ceremonies sounds lovely <laughs> exactly uh, in fact uh, i mean 100 years back it was so strict that uh, priestly families like mine we could not marry a girl from a non priestly family i mean in my grandfather's time it was unthinkable wow you know yeah even but, within uh, such a small it just seems strategically like a really silly idea i'm it, sorry to say but yeah even no, the non I mean, conversion thing it's, right it's like makes yeah, your course, religion unsuccessful makes your religion die out absolutely uh absolutely yeah but uh, you know uh, they have uh, i mean i'm just going to be the devil's advocate here you know mm-hmm. uh, so the, what the orthodox say is that uh, all kinds of banal uh, practices will come into the fold like uh, idol worship etc etc and to prevent that we are keeping it closed but actually what i think is uh, a lot of it has to do with the fact that we have a huge amount of property we are the largest land owners in bombay largest private land owners mm-hmm. and all this uh, property and charities are in the parsi trust okay so what they are afraid is that uh, people will convert uh, just to take advantage of uh, uh, you know okay okay this. so i think it is uh, now at least now i mean for a thousand years it may have been uh, with the aim of uh, you know protecting a distinct culture etc but uh, now it's really about uh, protecting these huge coffers mhm and even that protecting the purity of the culture things just uh, it's not unique to uh, zoroastrianism obviously but it strikes me as very supremacist in every religion it's like a supremacist ideology that seems to be acceptable weirdly right like absolutely uh, you you see when i when i was a priest in my early teens i i mean i i, I was indoctrinated at 11 i mean there's a huge ceremony you have to uh, learn the 72 chapters of the yasna jeez uh, in what and, language and, then, and that's in avastan it's a very old very difficult language but uh, i mean the script is now written in english because almost nobody can read avastan except the oldies do you read so, it did you read it uh, no no absolutely not i did it in english oh, okay. and uh, and then i you have to stay in the fire temple for 30 days and things like that so you did I, that? i mean yeah of course i did that and i used to go uh, you know i mean in the holidays i used to uh, go to pray in the fire temple etc so you just uh, sit I there did. in a fire temple and you just pray like no, no, um, what do you do no no yeah yeah for 30 days yeah and that's the uh, you have to stay in seclusion there are all kinds of uh, rules to be followed it's a very ritualistic thing and you were 11 you know? 
Yes, I was 11. And you uh, managed to do this? That seems crazy. Like at 11, I couldn't sit still in front of the TV. Yeah, it was a, I mean, you know, a a very long uh, ceremony uh, that spans about five to six hours uh, reciting those 72 chapters and uh, doing all kinds of things. But so, yeah, it's a very ritualistic religion, although the priests are allowed to marry. Unlike uh, Christianity, mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, priests are allowed to marry. There's not much neurosis with sexuality, except for the menstruation part. You know, they go really crazy about menstrual uh, taboos. The good old menstruation part. Yes, we yes, have it yes. in Islam too. It's so good Absolutely. to feel loved by the creator that, <laughs> that created your menstrual cycle. Absolutely. And that's why the women are not allowed to become priests. Oh, those so, filthy, bleeding whores. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah, we are a very ethnocentric uh, minority. So, when I was in my teens, I used to think, well, what's the harm if we are protecting, uh, you know, indigenous tribes in the Amazon and the aborigines? Uh, why not? Why can't Parsis, you know, mm-hmm. uh, have rules to... Uh, keep their ethnic identity or whatever. Of course, now all that uh, really doesn't matter to me. I gave up on it uh, many, many years ago. So what caused you to leave the religion and how did that go down with the family? And I, I get asked a lot by friends uh, and family. I can't pinpoint this one instant or uh, book that I read. I guess it's a process, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, I guess even when I was religious, I never really believed in the silly creation story. And even Zoroastrianism has a creation story, you know. And I didn't believe in heaven and hell and stuff like that. And the more I read, I guess uh, there came a time when I uh, rejected the entire thing Mm -hmm. altogether. Uh, but uh, I have to admit, I am one of those uh, air-conditioned atheists, as Tariq <laughs> Fatah would say. I, I, I cannot uh, claim that I was persecuted for my disbelief. Uh, we are a very tolerant community, right. uh, except uh, a few raised eyebrows from the family. I don't think uh, anybody's ever questioned me or uh, badgered me about it. So, yeah. yes. so, there, so there's I'm your air-conditioned atheism right there. Yeah, I'm fortunate to have been uh, born in a time when uh, religion is really taken a backseat and been really watered down in the community. I guess there are many reasons for that. The main one being that nobody really takes the clergy seriously. The clergy has absolutely no power anymore. Hmm. over the people you know people do whatever they want the the bombay parsi panchayat in the 1800s used to be very dictatorial you know about uh, uh, things just like uh, you know how th- the muslims have you know the fatwa and stuff like that mm-hmm. but i mean uh, it wasn't binding on anyone but uh, they had the power to socially ostracize you if you went against the community but even that since the early 1900s has uh, completely changed so i guess with affluence and uh, a secular education because we were the first ones in india to uh, really send our uh, women to school apart from the anglos and uh, you know we embraced the british uh, education system wholeheartedly yeah. and it said so, that the parsis are were like the darlings of the british raj and- yes yes i i guess so yeah uh, even though we did have people like dadabai navroji in the freedom struggle and stuff and firosha mehta but i guess the community was has always been predominantly pro establishment you know mm-hmm. even in uh, earlier times uh, there are records of parsis heading the hindu armies Ardeshir headed the Hindu armies of Gujarat during the Islamic invasions and mm-hmm. stuff. So we've always been pro-establishment. In fact, the only time, there, there are two instances when Parsis actually revolted against the British. One was in the early 1900s uh, when they were uh, gassing stray dogs. You know, they were uh, neutering them and mm-hmm. killing them. And the Parsis were outraged and all of them went on strike. because oh, we are r- r- for a good reason <laughs> to go on strike. Yeah, because we are dog lovers. And then in uh, somewhere around the 1800s sometime, 
two Parsis were converted by a reverend, Reverend John Wilson from Wilson College, from where, uh, in fact, I went to Wilson College. It's just a stone's throw from my house. So he converted two Parsi boys and uh, overnight uh, 400 Parsi students resigned from the college and uh, the Bombay Parsi Panchayat went to court uh, saying, how can you do that? How can you convert? But of course, uh, the court paid no heed to them. So that's what uh, then spurred all the industrialists, the rich moneyed folks in the community to start colleges and schools Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, they didn't want the Parsi kids to be uh, influenced by the missionaries. Mm-hmm. So so that's how Parsis uh, started the first school for women in India. Uh, Jamshed GGG boys started those schools in the 1800s. Cool. So yeah, um, so I guess, I guess uh, all these factors really contributed to uh, the religion's slow death. I think it's uh, on its last legs. Right. I mean, I think it's always nice to maintain some uh, cultural identity as long as it's kind of like powerless, something that is not toxic. You know, it's nice to have your traditions and uh, your holidays, but none of the hate of the religion. And if that's the stuff that's going away, that's great, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. For instance, a lot of my friends, you know, mock me. Uh, you're an atheist. Why do you celebrate no rose? Mm-hmm. I said, because I enjoy good food and sweets, you know, what's wrong? Yeah. I mean, if you, if you, uh, it, to me, it's like a Harry Potter theme party. Absolutely. I, I, don't, I don't believe <laughs> Harry Potter exists, but if you're throwing a party, I'm coming. <laughs> I love you know, that analogy. If, if there's free booze, yeah, what's, what's wrong? So, there are a lot of aspects of culture, you know. At least uh, you like guys food. have booze on your on your uh, cultural Weddings. holidays. Weddings. Yes, yes, absolutely. If, we if don't. you don't so if you don't serve booze at the wedding, people will talk about it for like thirty years. <laughs> you know, that's like the reverse uh, for us. If you serve booze at the wedding, <laughs> oh my gosh, people will people do talk about it. So mostly I've been to like weddings as a grown woman and me and my cousins are like in the parking lot at a car and we're like having drinks. And I'm like, I feel like a, you know, like a 14 year old sneaking booze before a wedding or something, but we still have to do that. Yeah, well, one of my cousins got married on a on a dry day, so you're not allowed to serve booze on a dry day in public places. Oh. And uh, I think that was maybe ten years ago. And even now, when relatives talk about it, it was like sacrilege. You know, how could he not? How could he get married on a dry? Why did he get married day, you know? on on a dry day? <laughs> yeah, because they didn't get to drink at the wedding. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think a lot of my cultural and family get-togethers would be so much more fun if everyone was a little tipsy. (laughs) Tipsy. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. So, yes, there are a lot of aspects of culture that you can retain uh, without believing in fairy tales. I think that's absolutely uh, perfectly uh, possible. And it's nice. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. It's nice. It'll be cool to look back on, you know, the longer we keep them going, these bizarre traditions, just like Christmas trees and things, right? Like if they're harmless, if they don't come with religion, there's nothing wrong with them. Absolutely. Absolutely. But yeah, yeah, you know, I had no idea that um, Zoroastrianism was so ritualistic, even though I've had a couple of Parsi friends in school. And I mean, I went to school in Pakistan briefly for like two years um, uh-huh. and that's where I had a couple of Parsi friends and they were so secular that you'd never know you know they never ever talked about religion there was no um, there was no day where you could say oh this is what they're doing because of their religion it just never came up with Parsis that's true that's true actually a lot of people whine about it that uh, Parsis don't allow non-Parsis into their temples and of yeah, course uh, that. That it's it's not because of any good intention it's because of some silly uh, ritualistic beliefs that uh, you know the holy fire is so sacred that if you touch a dead body and come into the fire temple or if you're menstruating then the fire temple will get desecrated and since the locals do not know about all these rules that's why we don't allow them that's the line right. that the orthodox will give you but I think it has had a what can I how can I say it's serendipitous uh, outcome it has had a 
you know, uh, hidden uh, advantage that Parsis have never had any trouble with religious politics because they have kept their religion to themselves. Yeah. So e- even though uh, that practice is born out of uh, ritualistic dogma, I think uh, it was a blessing in disguise uh, because in a highly uh, diverse society, the Indian society, where there are so many religions and so many uh, riots based on religion and, uh, you know, it's always on the edge. Uh, I think it has served us well to keep our fairy tale to ourselves. Right, but I think it also helps that it's such a small minority, so you kind of get to hide away in that corner and not... Otherwise, I think if it was a bigger community, people would be more outraged that the entire... Like, like Islam, they they don't allow uh, non-Muslims into the holy places like Mecca and Medina, but it just comes off like a very... Elitist, like a very uh, big douche move. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there's another uh, thing, you know, uh, the fire temples there, there's nothing really to see in them. Uh, that's another good thing. The wealthy Parsis have always been traditionally reformist. So uh, the Tatas and the Jiji boys, they never really gave money to build temples or uh, we don't have gold and silver adornments in our temples like some of the Hindus temples do you know mm-hmm. some of the Hindu temples in India they've got uh, gold that's more than uh, you know that could buy literally buy a lot of African countries it's wow. no exaggeration yeah trillions of dollars in gold uh, rooms full of it on the other hand Parsi temples are uh, Zoroastrian temples are really Spartan uh, there is absolutely nothing except for the fire and uh, cheap, cheap tiles and but I want to see it paint. and I can't. Well, you can actually. Uh, the fire temples in New York are open to everyone. Oh, you yeah? know, the, yeah, of course. The the Parsis who have migrated from here to North America, even Toronto, I think, must be having one. I'll check but, it out. Uh, but in New York, they have uh, just inaugurated one a few months back. And it's open to everyone. See, outside India, Parsis are uh, predominantly reformist and uh, progressive. So uh, you won't find any of these ritualistic dogmas anymore. You can pretty much enter any temple and see it. That's good, because outside uh, Pakistan, a lot of Pakistanis and Muslims are very uh, kind of like insecurely clinging on to a much more extreme version of their beliefs like in the UK I mean not not all British Muslims but British Islam still tends to be terrifying yes yes I've heard about that like my friends in Pakistan granted I know um, I guess I come from a, a liberal family and they all live in a very tolerant neighborhood um, so I don't have that kind of access to the very crazy and tolerant <laughs> Uh, uh-huh. Muslims, but if I compare the people I know in Pakistan and the people that I know from Britain, mm-hmm. they're very different kinds of Muslims. Is it? In Pakistan and in Saudi too, they're pretty laid back because um, we had compounds I'm, in Saudi, right? We all didn't uh-huh. really get influenced that much mm-hmm. by the, the okay. actual Saudi lifestyle and Saudi way of practicing, at least when I was growing up. I think now Wahhabism has spread everywhere. But you know, a few years back, I was in Bahrain. I took my rig there for repairs. Uh, And the Arabs in Bahrain, they are really liberal. None of them, I I, I never saw any of those uh, Arab supervisors in the yard. Uh, oh, you mean fact, like the, the, the morality police? Yeah, Bahrain is different to Saudi Arabia. No, not just the morality police, even the people, you know. Uh, uh, they didn't really uh, fast. I was there during the month of Ramadan and uh, a little bit before that. And I saw uh, Bahrain has liquor shops, you know. It's not yeah. like Dubai. Where, I know. Yeah. People used to, Saudis would drive on the weekends. And absolutely, go. absolutely. That bridge that connects uh, Bahrain to Saudi, it's built specifically for that purpose. Yep. So Saudis can come in on Thursday and drink it's a it's a traffic jam yeah but you won't believe one day before Ramadan all the shops all the liquor stores in Bahrain they had these huge queues huge queues <laughs> and all the Arabs with these uh, uh, you know the supermarket trolleys they were filling cans of beer and all kinds of liquor and storing up for the 30 days amazing uh, 
when when the liquor stores would close down and uh, some of the locals were telling me that this practice of closing down liquor stores also was uh, started recently i mean oh. i'm talking about 5 6 years ago yeah, uh, before that it was so liberal that even during ramadan the liquor shops used to remain open and the bars used to remain open oh. so yeah and and uh, ironically the indian muslims on the crew you know on the rig uh, they would go right you work uh, at an oil rig right yeah that's right yeah. Uh, so so the indian muslims on the crew would go to the mosque in the evening you know after hours and they would be like the only ones over there we all have our paradigms about uh, what the arab world is and i was really stunned to see that bahrain was uh, quite liberal the people you know yeah bahrain dubai uh, i mean they're totally different to what saudi is like so i've never Absolutely. been to either but i had relatives in both and i would hear but anyway yeah so let's go back to uh to Zoroastrianism. Okay. Priesthood. What was it like? Well, uh, I I was a part-time priest, so uh I'm priest I at 11. Is this common <laughs> for people to be a priest at such a young age? Yes, yes. We only go during the important ritual uh, rituals and on the important days, you know, uh during the gathas when they pray for the dead and the departed and etc. So, uh yeah and that's another thing you know we have exactly the same uh, faith schools called the madrasas i didn't go to one oh, i had you a guys private have something called madrasas absolutely it's the same word but there's a big difference it's like a boarding school where the kids go uh, to learn the yasna kids of priestly families they go so there to learn so not any family can choose to have their child be a priest no absolutely not absolutely oh. not there's the priest and the non priest family and like i said uh, 150 years back you couldn't even marry somebody in the non priestly family uh, but now everything's changed so anyway yeah the kids it's like a boarding school but it, we call it the madrasa and uh, they are taught scripture and they attend a regular secular day school in the daytime uh, like all normal kids and then in the evening when they come back to the boarding school they are taught scriptures so they get a proper education they get their graduation and everything but at the same time they are taught scriptures till they are about 11 after which they are initiated as priests and then they perform ceremonies etc and uh, they can choose to continue working as priests in one of the fire temples or they can choose a vocation of their choice there is no compulsion okay so do you so, do you remember when you were staying at the fire temple feeling like this is really boring or of course uh, it it was boring uh, 30 days uh, but uh, my father had uh, really wanted me to be initiated because uh, he never was but there's no compulsion <laughs> no there's no compulsion no, know, yeah, but this but, is all compulsion yeah. you know what i mean yeah in in a way yeah but uh, but uh, ironically my father didn't even know the most basic of our prayer you know he couldn't tie his kasti not right what what uh, not what is the that the sadra and the kasti are basically the garments that the zoroastrians wear all the time and so he he didn't even know the basic even the most basic prayers i'm pretty sure he was an agnostic then why did he uh, want you to i i don't know he 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 had some kind of a some kind of pride in it and also probably because he uh wasn't initiated and my grandfather wasn't initiated so if you don't uh do it for three generations then you lose it something oh, like that oh dear okay so uh, yeah. some kind of status so, thing yes yes so my brother and i we both went through it but uh, uh eventually i gave up everything and uh, i'm sure i you know even the people in the fire temple who i was in contact with i'm sure they know that i have given up from my facebook posts and articles but uh, i've never really faced any sort of uh, discrimination or social outcast or anything like yeah, that yeah so everyone's been pretty accepting yes yes i That's guess great. Uh, So what was um dating like in such a small community where you kind of feel the pressure to date another Zoroastrian and there's they're pretty rare. Yeah, well, but uh in Bombay, you know, we have a huge community right, and so I uh, guess, yeah. Yeah, and and the community takes all these uh, initiatives, you know. Uh, we have all kinds of cultural get-togethers and uh 
festivals and stuff like that uh, like they will organize a paintball event or something like okay. that for for everyone between 15 to 22 or something like that you know mm-hmm. so they uh, they are trying really hard yeah, to keep trying. people yeah. they are trying but the uh, the good thing is there is no imposition anymore there are some crazies who will even today uh, disown their daughters and disown their sons and then uh, 10 years later when they have grandkids and all and then they'll there'll be a big reconciliation yeah stuff like that so it now it really depends upon family to family how crazy your folks are but uh, <laughs> as a community there is no uh, uh, of course i i mean if you marry outside if it's a woman her kids will not still not be allowed in the orthodox temples and stuff yeah but like but like i said uh, there is a whole reformist support system now do you come across that. many atheists of zoroastrian background uh, i guess uh, I not not vocal not yeah. vocal that I can remember but uh, I'd say yeah in my own friend circle there must be a couple I can uh, now that you have mentioned it I think a couple of guys they they really don't uh, believe in anything or they they don't pray but they, mm-hmm. they're like culturally they are parsi Right. Uh, you know, but apart they, from they, not believing, like don't the younger people maybe voice their uh, disapproval of the fact that Orthodox temples won't allow women who've married absolutely. out their children in? Yes, absolutely. They're still uh, struggling. They're still complaining, and uh, you know, since uh, the women are educated now and everything uh, progressive, they're questioning all these nonsense taboos. Mm-hmm. against menstruation and stuff religion you got to love it right <laughs> but um back to uh the parsi community trying i read an article about i'll put a link in the notes to it can india save its parsi community with assisted reproduction so there's like a what does it say a select team of doctors from throughout india will soon be working on an initiative that is as much of demographic importance as it is of medical interest this government led program geoparsi intends to use medical technology to boost the population of the fast shrinking parsi community that is correct that is uh, that's the geoparsi initiative So they're going to be yeah, using like of, IVF and stuff to absolutely yeah and there's the a lot of rate. counseling counseling for uh, uh, couples uh, you know uh, who are in their late 30s and have problems conceiving etc but uh, i uh, this obsession with numbers is relatively recent i think we've always been a small community but yeah i don't uh, rule out the fact that we are going to die out eventually but you know it's a problem that most uh, affluent societies have you know countries like japan in a society where there is 99% literacy and everyone has at least a graduation most mm-hmm. people are post graduates they don't want more kids that's uh, right i i saw a documentary about japan too where there it's like the only country in the world where they sell more adult diapers than baby diapers <laughs> yeah that's right that's right so they they have a huge uh, population de- decline problem right and uh, i i think any uh, community that has uh, reached a certain level of affluence you know and social status the birth rate automatically declines i i don't see it as a bad thing in the case of parsis it might be bad cuz the, uh, they'll be wiped out mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, i mean, I mean um, from uh, 1941 that article says the population was 114 1890 and then in 2011 it was 69000 that's, that's quite right. a big drop that's right that's right uh, but you know when we landed in india we were uh, just a few thousand we maybe some accounts say we were maybe 2 or 3000 oh wow okay so came. there was like a big boom then yes exactly the uh, the 19 the early 1900s was the time when our population you know had peaked uh, my my grandfather had like 10 siblings you know but wow. who has who has 10 siblings has, anymore yeah. yeah so i think it's a lifestyle issue but it's also interesting the strategies they'll go to like ivf but they won't accept converts or try to convert people you know it yes, just seems yes, like that's, very that's 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 their uh, neurosis with ethnicity yeah uh, 
So yeah, well, uh, I guess those things just don't matter to me anymore. You know, uh, as atheists, we know that when the lights go out, they just go out and right. Whether it's a vulture picking at your body, yeah. or whether you get cremated, or absolutely. In fact, just a few days back, I told the wife, uh, uh, I don't want to be consigned anywhere. Just uh, give the give the remains to the hospital. Let them harvest mm-hmm. all the organs. Uh, I thought she she would be outraged, but she took it really well. 15 years back, or maybe more, 15, 17 years back, this this meant a lot to me that, you know, uh, we have to be consigned to the Tower of Silence. I mean, today it doesn't matter. While I would still want to protect uh, the practice simply out of cultural reasons, you know, it's an interesting practice. And uh, if it works, then it's very environment friendly. You're not uh, polluting are there the any air. like vulture uh, like attempts at vulture fertility? Yes, they've uh, the community has spent huge amounts of money uh, building aviaries for yeah, vultures. Yeah. But uh, so far they have failed. They have uh, tied up with uh, government zoological people and uh, they've done all sorts of things. I think they even went all all the way up to the union government and got diclofen neck band or oh, something really? like that oh. but uh, you know the alternate option to diclofenac is not very cheap so the dairy farmers still use diclofenac to inject their animals which is causing the problem so i don't uh, i i mean the solar panels have solved the problem to some extent but uh, it's not a perfect solution mm-hmm. so yeah i think culturally if they can save it it's a nice thing, you know. It's something novel, something different. It is it's something different. Of, it creeps me the hell out, but it's definitely yeah, novel. Yeah, it, it's a part of our heritage. Yeah. But uh, a lot of Orthodox uh, folks are rooting for it because of the religious significance it has that, oh, your soul will only go to heaven if right, you're consigned right. to the yeah. Tower of Silence. But I don't believe that anymore. I, I think that's BS. Yeah. I remember dropping off a Parsi friend in Karachi because they had a compound as well where they lived, the Parsis in Karachi. So it was like a very closed community. And we saw like this, I guess, the Tower of Silence over there in the middle. And it just like, I just remember looking up at it, like this big, giant well tower. And people are like, yes. oh, look, that's the place where the vultures come to get the dead bodies. And I was like... That's blown right. away you know that's my <laughs> only memory like I'm like whoa yeah it's hard for people to believe that uh, I was uh, telling a Japanese friend of mine that this is how we dispose our dead and he thought I was you know just uh, joking he wouldn't believe me <laughs> so yes yeah and we do have those uh, colonies even in India you know where all the Parsis live together mm-hmm. and uh, Basically, uh, the rich folks, uh, they bought over these huge tracts of land in prime locations in the city during the colonial days. And they built homes for Parsis, which are only supposed to be allotted to ethnic Parsis, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even today, the trust deeds govern uh, who will get the house, depending on how poor you are and how needy you are. I mean, uh, of course, in uh, the Parsi context, somebody who's poor is a person earning less than 55,000 rupees right, a month, right. which is which is huge. Right, uh, compared to the actual per, poor of India, it's like... Absolutely. The person uh, living below the poverty line in India, I think, earns a few hundred rupees a month yeah. or even less. So, yeah, but uh, so we have all these... Parsi colonies. Yeah. So and a, hu- a few guess, hundred rupees a month. Like, how much is that in dollars? Just for context. Uh, maybe two, three, three two, dollars, three dollars or, a yeah. month. That is just, it blows my mind as well. Like, how do people sort of yeah. barely survive on that? It's so sad. So, yeah, there's tremendous disparity. And compared to that, uh, uh, we are a very affluent community. Yeah. Very affluent. Yeah. So the fire temple, this fire, this flame in the fire temple is supposed to be like never goes out, right? Absolutely. That's right. So uh, uh, there there are three grades of fire temple. The Atash Behram that they call it, uh, the highest grade is made up of 14 fires. They take a fire from a cobbler's house, a carpenter's house, a soldier's house. And each of those fires. That's uh, interesting. 
Yeah, and each of those fires has... Uh, so traditionally, every Zoroastrian house had a burning lamp or a burning fire, you know. Uh, that couldn't go so, out? Uh, well, no, that could go out. Oh, uh, but they, out. So they used to take the fire from 14 such houses and each of those fires would undergo some 117 to 120 rituals. And then they would be all combined and uh, the fire of the fire temple would be consecrated. So it's a very lengthy-ass procedure. Uh, I think the last fire temple that was consecrated in Bombay took two years. Wow. Uh, you know, uh, just for the rituals. Yeah, so it's a highly uh, ritualistic, wasteful yeah. <laughs> process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good thing they are not making any new fire temples anymore, at least in India. Right. yeah. And then the fire, yeah, burns or 24-7. There is a full-time priest in the fire temple who tends to it. He has to get up at 12.30, 4.30 a.m. To make and, sure the uh, fire's not out or doesn't. Yeah, and, yeah and, and he puts these huge logs of wood and performs the prayers uh, at every change of watch between morning and afternoon, afternoon to evening, and uh, there are rituals and everything, so... Wow, yeah. sounds like a really good use of time. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, but yeah, you know, as someone who doesn't believe in any of this stuff, it just seems so silly. Yeah, and wasteful. And wasteful, know. yeah. But that's religion for you, right? So I guess that about covers the really interesting background of Zoroastrianism. Thanks so much for taking the time to... Not at all. I hope it's uh, it doesn't turn out to be the most boring episode in your formidable lineup <laughs> of celebrity, <laughs> celebrity atheists and theists. You know, <laughs> Tarek and uh, Bina Shah. I, I, that was a really interesting conversation you had with Bina. I was tearing my head out. The the kind of apologia, you know, uh, blaming it on colonialism, yeah, and things like that. It's just, I mean, of course, colonialism and uh, imperialism and all that did play a role. Mm -hmm. But how long are we going to whine about that? I think even 500 years from now, an apologist is going to cite it's the British. Agreed. That's, that's, that's the cause of all our problems. Absolutely. And While the British have become more tolerant, we still say, well, they are the ones that put the rule in Pakistan that criminalize homosexuality or something. It's, it's silly. We can now yeah. move on. And but I think it's uh, outright uh, disingenuous and it's a lie. It's it, we, are pre we, are, we are pretending as if we were never homophobic before the Brits arrived. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. Or, I've seen so many articles about how our culture, Islamic culture, is so fluid and accepting of LGBT <laughs> before. Like, bullshit. Sure, we had some, like, gay people in our history, but... That doesn't yeah. change the homophobia. This is one thing I've observed, even with the right-wing Hindutva uh, nationalists and, well, Hindutva terrorists is the right word to call them. Yeah. You know, who, who lynch uh, people for eating beef yeah. or having beef in the fridge. There is this belief that they have that they are the most persecuted people on the planet. Every right-winger, every, you know, zealot, yeah. orthodox, they have the same thing. And, oh, yeah, uh, in Christian fact, persecution, Muslim absolutely, it's all, it's with everyone. In fact, uh, I'm going to uh, write a piece on that next. You know, even on the rig, I meet uh, white Christian conservatives from the Bible Belt, you know, from Louisiana yeah. and Texas. And if you listen to them, you think that white Bible thumpers in America are the most persecuted uh, people. <laughs> Absolutely. The Mexicans are taking away their jobs. The black people are getting all the benefits and the Medicare while they do no work. And they are the only ones who are working all hard and they are being persecuted. And it's the exact same with uh, Hindutva extremists from the Saffron Belt, you know. Every problem with Hinduism is either a product of the British rule or of, of the Mughal uh, and the Muslim invasion of India. Right. So, you know... Blame uh, it on someone else. Absolutely. So if you, like, if you talk to a Hindutvavadi and if you discuss the Gujarat pogrom in which the Hindu mobs took voters' lists and targeted Muslims and uh, killed over 2,000 Muslims with state backing and uh, with cops being complicit. And you say that and they'll say, oh, but what about the time when 
the Muslims burn that train full of Hindus. You know, <laughs> yeah. what about Godra? And then if you say, well, uh, this lynching somebody just because he had beef in the refrigerator is wrong. And they'll say, oh, but what about Aurangzeb? Yeah. 400 years ago, yeah. he, he killed so many Hindus and he destroyed so many temples. And you say, it's, it's always there tribe is the victim. Right. It's so, like how m many Muslims will use Western intervention or Western imperialism or for excusing Islamic terrorism, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's the same thing, just different shades of it. Even the Western far right, it's two so, sides of the same or many sides yeah, of the same coin. Yeah. I guess I, the persecution complex plays a very, very uh, major role in uh, their thinking, you know, mm -hmm. and all, all, all kinds of atrocities are justified just because one of their co-religionists was persecuted 600 years ago. Yeah. It's absolutely irrational, but uh, that's what drives them. Yeah. You uh, wrote a great article in the Huffington Post recently uh, called Terror Has No Religion, debunking the regressive left's cliches, which I really enjoyed. I have to say that I'm a bit annoyed at the term regressive left now because it's just been ruined. So I kind of just like, I roll my eyes and avoid well, things that mention it but you did you did a great job because you're actually talking about the regressive left many people now on that bandwagon are just mm -hmm. anti-left so absolutely yeah yeah well you know there are a lot of terms that get misused like that at the risk of uh, you know having my twitter feed bombarded I'll say that intersectional feminism is another such term. Every term is, uh, you know, misused, but uh, I mean, what can you do about it? Yeah. Uh, you, as long as just... we stick to the right context. Right. And I appreciated that you stuck a disclaimer for bigots in there. Um, yeah. This is an attempt to show a causal link between violence and Islamist ideology. Anyone who thinks that the vast majority of Muslims bear responsibility for the acts of their co-religionists will find no vindication here. I think it's perfect because and it's sad, but this is what needs to happen now because anytime you criticize Islam a whole truckload of crazy right-wing bigots will jump in and be like, yeah, they're foreigners they don't even speak English and just nasty non-criticisms of ideology um, absolutely, absolutely. I, in fact, uh, every time I post some anti something anti-Islam, you know, an article, a whole bunch of Hindutva trolls will start following me on Twitter, you know. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah. So it, it's a, uh, it's an unfortunate fallout, I guess. Yeah. At least you're doing your part to inoculate against those crazies jumping mm -hmm, on, right? Mm -hmm. You're saying I'm that's against right. you too. Um, and that's I think right. that's important. Anyway. Anyway, yeah. Thank you so much. I'll um, I'll add links to your uh, pieces. We even co-authored a HuffPo piece together. That was fun. That's right. That's um, right. That that was on the the censorship. Uh, that's so weird. The Facebook and YouTube censoring uh, atheists and ex-Muslims, yeah. but allowing uh, hate pages. Oh and yeah, like ISIS Nazi pages and, I and ISIS recruitment, and ISIS recruitment. <laughs> videos. Yeah. It's oh my weird. gosh. Even now, even though my podcast was banned off of YouTube twice and I finally managed to get it back, I didn't get my Facebook back yet and I uh -huh. have no hopes of it either. But Well, I don't know if it's uh, the people at uh, these uh, social media places or whether it is the mass reporting that does it. I don't know uh, what it is. But it's a real problem. Yeah, well, with me, as soon as I put the first episode of my podcast up, within mm -hmm. hours it was taken. So people are, someone is clearly watching. And then when I re-put it with a new account, brand new account that I created, put it up again, that was taken down within hours. So clearly there's wow. either a group watching or I don't know. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, other people who uploaded it on my behalf, the same content stayed up perfectly fine on their channels. It's me they have a problem with, not really the content. Uh-huh. Interesting. But yeah. Anyway, such is life. You keep okay. fighting the good fight and writing excellent articles. 
Okay, thank you. And, and uh, looking forward to part two of Tariq's uh, episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well. you yeah. sent a great selfie too for for that <laughs> while watching the... It, it was so crazy. Uh, it was funny in the beginning with, uh, you know, all the assalamu alaikum and... Uh, and the Arab appropriation and uh, the air-conditioned atheists and all. But then he just, uh, you know, goes on a different tangent and suddenly becomes defensive and uh, dismissive. But but I read that summary that somebody uh, put up on that podcast and it was it really summed it up really well about what Tariq was trying to do on that episode, you know. Yeah, to someone's be, uh, yeah. writing a blog post about it. I mean, I think... It, it's hit yeah, a few was, nerves with quite a few people, this conversation. Yeah. I'm glad that... Uh, it was a very accurate uh, description. <laughs> that Yeah, that conversation was really... It was something. But kudos to all my guests who come on outside of their comfort zone. And I got to give them credit for that, you know, because people are usually comfortable going where they will be agreed with and nodded along with. and Absolutely. And that's what makes it interesting. And I, I suspect that's what makes this, that, that, that sort of will make this episode really boring, but I'm hoping it's not the worst on your, <laughs> oh, on man, your list. We should have scheduled like an argument. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Next time, part two. Okay. All right. Okay, see you. Bye. All right. Have take a good day. care. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of Polite Conversations. You can support this podcast by sharing the shit out of it, making some noise about it, or contributing via Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes. No Ian mangoes. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Nice Mangoes. If you want to make a one-time donation instead of a monthly Patreon one, you can do so via PayPal. NiceMangoes.blog at gmail.com. Remember, no Ian Mangoes. If you've got an interesting story and would potentially like to be a guest, you can email me there too. A special thanks to Dylan Beck for theme music, sound, and production help.